excited that y'all chose to come and be here with us. I know that it's a special day. I know it's a time when a lot of our families have traveled and are spending time with us, and that's always a great time. And uh, maybe you're familiar with coming to church all the time, and maybe you're not. Maybe this is new to you. Uh, whatever the case might be, we're really happy that you're here, and we're really thrilled that you chose to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ together with us here at First Baptist Church. That's really what this is all about. I do want to try and encourage you today and bring your attention to a message from the Scripture, and I want to start by um, basically presenting the title I've chosen for this message, and that's this, Why the Resurrection Matters to Me. I want you to ask yourself that question. Why should the resurrection of Jesus Christ matter to you in your daily life? Now, certainly, without question, this celebration of Easter, it has to mean more than just a day in church where everybody gets out their nice clothes and looks good, and it's got to mean more than just chocolate bunnies and Easter eggs. There's got to be something more to this thing. So I want to start by asking what might seem to be a silly question, but it'll, it'll lead us somewhere, and it is this simple question. Just I want you to consider within yourselves the obvious question. Do you really believe in God? I mean, do you? Re- I'm in church, Jeff. It's Easter. Yes, okay, I know. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ loves you? I mean, how do you know that? Well, Jesus loves me, this I know. Say it with me. For the Bible tells me so, right? And so we know that Jesus loves us. Why? Because he gave us his word, and his word reveals to us all of these things. The things that happened in his life are actual historical facts and they're recorded for us in the scripture that's an important thing because what happens is is that means that you actually if you said yes to those things and I assume that most all of you would say yes to that you believe that there is a spiritual component to life that life is more than just the physical reality that's around us And so with that in mind, I want to obviously today dive into what is the spiritual component of life and why the resurrection of Jesus Christ should matter to each and every one of you in your daily life. And so uh, before we jump into that, let me just take a second and lead us in prayer. So Heavenly Father, we come before you eternally grateful. Words are not enough to express our thankfulness for all that you've done for us. While we were sinful, lost, hopeless, you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, to live in a human body without sin for his entire life on this planet, die taking our sin upon him and taking it into the grave, dying our death, but not staying there. Because on that third day that we celebrate today and can celebrate every day, He rose from the grave, conquering death and hell and sin and offering to all of us the free gift of eternal life. Lord Jesus, I pray that through this time together in your word, you would lead and guide and speak to all of us, for we pray in his holy name. Amen. Okay, so if you believe in God and if you believe that Jesus loves you because the Bible told you so, then I have another question for you. Does that mean that you also believe that there is a literal devil? Because, you know, the Bible says that, too. God is the spirit that defines and promotes everything that is good and right and holy. But there is a declared enemy, and he is the devil, which defines and promotes everything that is evil. With the purpose, the express purpose of thwarting God's plan for your life. Do you believe that? Because the Bible reveals that to us. Okay, so to set this up, I want to read to you a little excerpt that I picked up this week. It's, many of you will remember the very famous radio personality, a guy by the name of Paul Harvey. He died not too long ago, and he's famous from his radio series where he referred to the rest of the story. Well, one of his radio broadcasts, very interesting, back in 1965, he had this titled, If I Were the Devil. Try and hear Paul Harvey's voice if you can. If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I would have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population. 
but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on that tree, thee. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that which is bad is good and what is good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors on how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions. Just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, and then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I would take from those who have and I would give it to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what will you bet I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich? I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Well, he said that in 1965. Let me ask you this, could it be possible that the pursuit of all the riches of this world are really just a scheme of the devil? The proverbial carrot on a stick for you to follow that ultimately leads you to your own destruction? I'm a fan of pop culture and an actor by the name of Kevin Spacey in a movie called The Unusual Suspects played a character named Kaiser Sose and he coined this very profound saying when he said this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist. Well, there's just something about this present world system, and that's our first point for study in your notes, the present world system. Jesus warns us in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, there's just something about the devil and this world that seem to go hand in hand. And Jesus wants you to know that your soul is of far greater value. Well, according to the Bible, the world system is evil. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 3, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Why? That he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. So Christ gave himself with the express purpose to deliver us from this place called present and evil world. And it is God's will that that happen. The world is set on a course by the devil. Because this world is the realm in which he operates quite freely. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 2. Speaking to people who are believers in Jesus Christ and referring to the time prior to that moment of salvation. It says, wherein in time past ye believers walked according to the course 
of this world. This world is set on a course. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That spirit that works in the children of disobedience, that prince of the power of the air, that one that sets the world on a course that is called present and evil, is the devil. How can he do that? Well, because he is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God, small g, of this world, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So the small g God of this world, the, the spiritual force that is directing the course that, of this world's existence, this, this social existence that we're all a part of, has the express purpose and goal to blind the minds of you and everybody you love so that you will not believe in the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what exactly does that look like? I mean, what are some of the typical pursuits of modern man? How does the devil use this power? How does he use this present world system to blind you from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we're going to look at several of those things, and they're in your notes. The first one is wealth. Why is it that people want wealth? Well, look, we don't have to be too spiritual about it. It's fairly clear. Life without enough wealth, it's stressful. It's chaotic. It's hard. Without enough money, people suffer. That's just a fact. And nobody wants that. I would say that most of us in the United States of America, I certainly wouldn't presume to speak for everyone here, most of us who live in the wealthiest country on the planet probably don't really suffer financially, although we do have you know, ebbs and flows of times when it's difficult. I, I understand that. Generally speaking, we live pretty good compared to the rest of the world. So why is it that we in the richest country on the face of the planet continue forever to pursue more and more and more wealth? You ever ask yourself that question? I mean, we buy more toys so that we can play more. We go on more vacations, and we do it over and over again, hoping that our time will run out before our money runs out. But the question is, is that really satisfying? Well, of course not. You know the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins, should be changed to say, he who dies with the most toys is still dead. Another pursuit is health. Why do people strive for optimal health? Well, it's obvious. To live better, to live longer. That's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a great idea. There's everything right with that. So work out. Eat right. Deny yourself all the goodies. Get up. Run. Exercise until you're dripping with sweat. Some really love it. I mean, it's like an addiction. They can't get enough. No problem. Others hate it. But they might do it anyway because they understand the benefits. But the food is still full of hormones. The plants are still poisoned by the pesticides. The minerals are depleted from the soil. The groundwater is tainted from the factories. Hey, move to the mountains. Move to the beach. Go off the grid. Eat organic. That'll do it. I mean, God forbid you live near power lines. Don't cook on Teflon. <laughs> All of life leads to hospital beds and cemeteries. You can't stop that. The FDA is corrupt. The lobbyists get big government to lie to us so that they can endorse their stuff. You can't... Time happens to all of us. We get older every year. So we try plastic surgery. They pull and they tuck until your belly button's on your chin. <laughs> it's nasty. Your body will start to break down. So that's not fully satisfying. 
What about relationships? Okay, forget money. Forget the perfect body. All I need is love. The Beatles had it right. Why? Because if I have that special someone by my side, the rest of the world can go to hell, but I'm okay. Really? Well, I mean, positive relationships are some of the greatest joys we experience in this life. But at the same time, I want you to remember Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Friends, there's just something systemically wrong with humankind. Something's broken. And, and that's manifested by one of the verses of Scripture, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse number 9, where it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So even our very best relationships, sadly, frequently, fall by the wayside. And you know what? Let's not even mention government and politics. I mean, we're in church. <laughs> I, I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to enjoy a nice day together. So I think you get it. Not satisfying. Listen, the best that you can expect from this present evil world Still leaves you wanting, doesn't it? It's messed up. And there's nothing you can do about it. All right, have a nice day. <laughs> there is good news, of course. God did something about it. And that's our second point that we're going to study today, and it's the promised future kingdom. The promised future kingdom. Consider this. Maybe you have considered it. What if we could have... A perfect society. The Greeks used to call it utopia. But the thing about the Greek idea of utopia, literally the word utopia from the Greek language means good place. Let's find that good place. The problem is, is that it's a mythological place. It doesn't actually exist. It's just a dream. It's just a fantasy. It's a desire that maybe it would, but it actually doesn't. Well, what about nirvana? The Buddhists have that, right? They understand that there's no actual literal place. They understand that the life that we live in and the world system we live in is broken. And so they just go within themselves and determine, well, I'll find my own little happy place within myself and the world around me can do whatever it needs to do. The idea is of, of nirvana is it's an imperturbable stillness of mind. After the fires of desire, aversion, and delusion have been finally extinguished. In other words, if you could shed yourself from all of those evil influences, then you can find your happy place. The question that we're interested in is, does God have a version of that? Of course he has a version of that, and the great news is it's an actual real version. It's an actual real place. It's not a fantasy. And just as sure as you are sitting here today, it exists, or at least it will exist, because it's future. It's prophesied. It's going to happen. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse number 18. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The perfect day is something that is going to come. Well, what exactly is the perfect day? Well, if you want to understand it, we're going to compare Scripture with Scripture, and we're going to go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 8, where Peter says, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Friends, you need to understand this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So from one perspective, we understand that God is greater than our circumstances in our world, and God is outside of the realm of time, and so... You could just read it simply to mean, well, you know, a day, a thousand years for God, it's all kind of the same because he's eternal, and that's fine. But maybe he's trying to give us a key that God refers to days in direct comparison with thousand-year periods of time. So the perfect day, if we literally believe what God is telling us, and there's every reason to do that, is going to be a 1,000-year-long day that the Bible calls the day of the Lord. It lasts a millennium. 
It's the kingdom of God on earth. And whether or not you realize it, it is the theme of the entire revelation of Scripture. You say, I thought the theme of the entire revelation of Scripture is love. Well, that's a great byproduct. You say, I thought the theme of the entire revelation of Scripture was Jesus Christ crucified and offering the free gift of salvation. And I would say, wow, that is the most important thing to me because without that, I'm in big trouble. But that only affords me the ability through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ to get in on the bigger picture, which is God's kingdom that literally will last for a thousand years right here on planet Earth. So what can we know about that day? What will that day be like? Well, I'd like for you, if you can, to imagine a society where human life is extended. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old. But the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. How long does a tree live? People are going to live extended lives in that perfect day. Well, one of the reasons is because our second point, letter B, health will be restored. You won't find blind and lame people. You won't find orphans, no cancer, no life-threatening diseases, great nutrition, healthy environments, people helping one another, foreigners, widows, Psalm 146, starting in verse 5. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever, which executeth judgment for the oppressed, which giveth food to the hungry. The Lord looseth the prisoners. The Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. The Lord raiseth them that are bowed down. The Lord loveth the righteous. The Lord preserveth the strangers. He relieveth the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked he turneth upside down. The Lord shall reign forever, even thy God, O Zion, unto all generations. Praise ye the Lord. This is a society that human life will experience abundance and levels that we can only dream about. I put in your notes, letter C, childbearing is joyful. And a lot of families would say childbearing is currently joyful. Yes, it is, but it's also associated with a lot of pain. And one of the ways, for example, that I gave you is... In Psalm 113, in verse number 9, it says, He maketh the barren women to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. You know what that tells me? That we'll no longer have problems with sterility. I mean, there's just going to be something about life that's going to be so much better than you could ever imagine. How's all that going to take place? Well, because the natural elements will be enhanced. Letter D. Let's talk about light, one of the key building blocks of our existence. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 26. Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day. That's the day of the Lord, right? That the Lord bindeth up the breach of his people and healeth the stroke of their wound. Go to chapter 60 and verse 19. The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon Give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and, the God, and thy God thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. Ultimately, this society is illuminated by the very Shekinah glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So light is enhanced. Water is enhanced as we're going to see a new river that flows out from God's temple in Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse number 1. Afterward, he brought me again under the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the side of the altar. Now, this is important because the source of transforming all the natural life on planet Earth comes from these waters. It is the source. 
And what happens is the waters flow out from the throne of God and they flow into all of the other waterway streams. And the Bible says, and heals the other waters. Same chapter, verse number 8. Then said he unto me, these waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters of the sea shall be healed. Well, what does that affect? Well, it affects a lot of things because actually all of life comes from water at some level. And so you'll have great multitude of fish because these waters heal everything. So fishing will be easy. Verse 9, it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. And everything shall live whither the river cometh. Everything these waters touch lives. That's a river of life. A literal river of life. The Bible says that there'll be trees on both sides of this river, fruit trees, whose leaves are medicinal, affecting probably the long lives of people as well. Same chapter, verse number 12. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his month's. Because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. So you don't feel well? Just walk out to the tree. Grab a couple of leaves, grind them up, make a cup of tea, drink it down, feel great. I mean, I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but let me just encourage you while you're listening to this. Please don't allow yourself to be skeptical and dismiss all of this description that God gives us as allegory. Because God has given us his word to, understand, to be understood literally and for us to put our faith in the truth of what he is forewarning us about what is to come. This is great news. And so we see these natural elements enhanced, which obviously then affect other things. Letter E, plant life. So the plant life flourishes. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. It's as though all of creation, all of nature understands there's something better coming. There's something better coming. It's as though the plants themselves are, are groaning within themselves saying, Man, I can't wait for that day. Earlier in that same chapter, it says that for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. That's the day of the Lord. That's the perfect day. What happens is that nature takes on the characteristics of Eden, the Garden of Eden, before the fall of man and before the entrance of sin. In other words, the curse that was placed on nature as a result of sin, it's removed it's removed. So what you'll see, for example, is that the desert will blossom as a rose. Why? Because the living waters flow into it. Isaiah 35, verse number one, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. And while these things are growing and flourishing, what we find is that they will be without thorns or briars. No more weed eating. Isaiah 55 and verse 13, instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And when these things happen, and even the deserts blossom with life-giving, fruit-bearing vegetation, you know what we don't have anything, you know what we don't have anymore? Overpopulation. It absolutely eliminates the problems of overpopulation since food can grow anywhere. By the way, y'all, this planet is not overpopulated. We just all live crammed together in the same places. There's tons of space on this planet, but it's not all fruitful space. Psalm 65, verse number 9. Thou visitest the earth 
and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn when thou hast so provided for it. Chapter 67, verse 3. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him in the perfect day. In the perfect day. And all of these changes affect everything such that, letter H, animal life becomes a worldwide petting zoo. This is fantastic. Isaiah chapter 11, verse number 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. Notice this. And a little child shall lead them. Can you imagine that? So instead of your dog or cat, you know, you've got Simba, king of the jungle, and, you know, your three-year-old is just leading them around. What a petting zoo. It's awesome. And the cow and the bear shall feed, and their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp. And the wean child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The whole earth full of the knowledge of the Lord. Not as the waters cover the land, as the waters cover the sea. How much of the sea are covered by waters? Well, all of it. It's not like, well, 70% of the earth. No, all of it is, all of the sea. The law of the jungle is out. Because we're going back to the garden. It's not a jungle. You know what a jungle is? It's a garden gone out of control. And so the law of the jungle is out. And the animals aren't even going to eat each other and kill each other. Don't you want to go there? Don't you want to make sure that you got a spot there? If you can allow yourself to believe what God said, if you can allow yourself to not sit skeptically in judgment as though you think you have a better idea or as though you think you have more authority to determine that what God said, oh, by the way, died and bled to make sure you got a copy of, is not accurate, then you're on the verge of some great phenomenal changes in your life. Specifically about this perfect day, this 1,000-year kingdom on earth. If you're not sure yet, your natural question has to be, well, how do I get in on that? I mean, that sounds awesome. So we've got the present world system is broken. And everybody said amen. And the future coming kingdom is awesome beyond imagination. And everybody said amen. The question is, how do I get from here to there? And that's our third point today. The prerequisite for entrance. It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why the resurrection matters to me. And that's why it should matter to you. Easter makes it possible for you to get in on the perfect day. It's only by the resurrection of Jesus Christ that all of this is made available to man. If Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead, then we would all be hopelessly stuck in this situation we're in, in this present evil world, set on a course by the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, whose express purpose is to blind your mind so that you don't believe the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see this? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17 says it this way, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. 
the reality of the historicity of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the key turning event. It is the tipping point that shifts everything so that your life doesn't have to be hopeless, so that your future doesn't have to be without any way out. Go down to verse 19 of that chapter. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. Stop there for a second. Please don't misunderstand me. Putting your faith and trust in the risen Savior and allowing him to be the Lord of your life today and to do all the things that he's done in so many of your lives already, it's a fantastic thing, and you have enjoyed that, and you are thankful for that. But you have enjoyed that, and you are thankful for that. I am saying to you on the, on the authority of 1 Corinthians 15, 19, because there's something more after this life. If all we had was putting our faith in Jesus here and now, and there was nothing after, there was not the great brass ring, there was not the great prize, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, we of all men are most miserable. But it doesn't stop there, of course. The next verse, 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. So thank the Lord he actually did that. If all we had was faith in this life and there was no hope for the future, if there was no resurrection of Christ, we would have no hope that we would have a resurrection. But indeed he rose, therefore opening the way for all of us. And it says that he is the first fruits. Well, if he's the first fruits, that means there will be others to follow. There will be others to follow after him. And so I put in your notes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees your resurrection. I don't care if you're a Christian person or not. I don't care if you're an atheist or not. It doesn't matter if you believe some other world religion or you're just skeptical and reject it all. The fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave guarantees that you also will be raised. But before you get too excited about that, it's not all good news. John chapter 5 and verse 29 says this, And they shall come forth, they that have done good, unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil, unto the resurrection of damnation. So God is telling us something, that there are two distinctively different resurrections, life and damnation. And he says those that have done good unto the resurrection of life. Well, what exactly does that mean? What exactly does it mean to do good? Well, rather than us just thinking about what we think it means, why don't we rather determine what God says it means? And I want you to see with me what does it mean to do good spiritually. From Psalms 14, verses 2 and 3, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. What did he find out? They're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Boy, that's bad news. God looks down at man. He's looking for somebody that has done good, good things. And he says, no, not one. Not even one. And so you think, boy, that's... I mean, I, I studied logic a little bit in college. I mean, we're leading ourselves down a logical path that has a pretty bad ending. Yeah, that, that's the truth. But obviously, the story doesn't just end there. That is a piece of the puzzle. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So if for some reason... Somebody were to ask you the question today. God forbid your life ended before this day ended, and you stood before the Lord in glory, and God were to ask you, suppose that God were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would be your answer? Now, just within yourself, think, what would be my answer? Well, you know what a real common answer is if you just go and survey people out in the city? A very common answer, and maybe some of your thoughts would be, well, 
I'm not really a bad guy. I mean, if you put them in a scale, I'd say that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and God is merciful, and I think my chances are pretty good. That actually is a fairly common response. But God says in Ephesians 2, that's not how it works. In fact, it can't possibly how it works because as he looks down to find who does good, he he found no one. And so God set up a system where it's not by your works at all. Because Isaiah 64 and verse 6 tells us that even our very best works, our most righteous acts, are like filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. That means your most sincere, selfless, humanitarian, kind, loving deeds are still sinful. They're still sinful, and they're not good enough. So, by definition, if we're going to talk about a resurrection, a resurrection requires a death, right? I mean, you're resurrected. You're brought back to life again. It requires a death first. Jesus died first, and then he rose from the grave. We will all die one day, and we will all rise somewhere, life or damnation. But spiritually speaking, there's an element of this that you need to understand. Romans 6.23, the first part of the verse says, The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, All of you here are old enough, you're smart enough, every human being understands that everybody eventually will grow older, suffer a physical death. We get that. It's obvious, it's inevitable. But the Bible speaks of something that's called a second death. The physical death would be your first death. The Bible speaks of a second death, and it's a spiritual death. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 8, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, is that your crowd? That's a tough crowd. Shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What is the second death? The second death is a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. The second death we would call hell. And all these people that do all these terrible things are going to be there, but please don't miss the beginning of the list because of the terrible aspects of the later list. But the fearful and unbelieving, not just the liars and the whoremongers and adulterers, just simply not believing puts you in that category, which sends you to a spiritual death, which is literally separation from God for all of eternity burning in a lake of fire. This would be the resurrection of damnation, referred to in John chapter 5. So there is a death required. And yes, there'll be a physical death. It's inevitable. But there actually is a spiritual death required of each and every one of us. If you do nothing, you will experience the second death, and you do not want that. So there is good news. You can prearrange your spiritual death now. That sounds kind of weird. What are you talking about? Well, let me explain. The second part of Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Gift. It's a gift. That is the definition of the word grace. If you don't spend a lot of time in church or if you don't think about it that much, what is grace? Well, grace is just simply somebody giving you a gift. You don't deserve it. They just want to give it to you. And so they offer you a gift. It's something free. You don't work for it. It's just given to you. That's grace. And the Bible said in Ephesians 2 that by grace are we saved. Oh, through faith. So by faith we appropriate the gift that's given to us, this issue of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What did he do? Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners stuck in a system that's broken as human beings sinful and broken while we were yet sinners and enemies of the cross he loved us so much and he proved it to us that he sent Jesus Christ to die for us the Bible's very clear Jesus Christ died 
on the cross of Calvary some 2,000 odd years ago. And when he did, he died the death to pay the penalty of sin for each and every one of us. No exceptions. He died for you. But because he died for you, friends, does not mean that each and every one on, the, on this planet that's ever lived automatically goes to heaven. You know that. Of course you know that. We read about the second death. Some guys are ending up in there. So certainly not just because Jesus did what he did. Everybody on the planet automatically gets to go to heaven, right? I mean, that's clear. Certainly there is something required of us. What is that something that is required of us? Well, of course he doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us in John chapter 1 and verse number 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. There it is. There's your act of faith. All you have to do is believe in what he did for you. You need by faith to confess your sins to him, to ask him to forgive you of your sins personally, and to give you the free gift of eternal life. By faith, you are putting your faith and what he said about the way the situation is set up. Yes, you can sit here and reject it. Yes, you have a free will and an ability to say, I ain't buying it. You can do that. But go ahead and roll the dice. It's on you. He loves you so much. He brought you here to warn you about how you can get out of that mess. So what exactly are you believing? Well, you're believing what the Bible says about you that you're broken, you're a sinner. All have sinned, including me, including you, every one of us, and come short of the glory of God. You're hopeless, left to yourself. Your most righteous deeds are filthy rags. You also believe what the Bible says about Jesus, that he is the only one who ever lived a perfectly sinless life. Therefore, he is the only one who could possibly intervene and take your sin debt upon himself because he had no sin debt of his own. The wages of sin is death. Jesus did not have to die because of his sin. He didn't have any. He died because of our sin. And if you believe what the Bible says about you, if you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, and then here's the big step of faith. Personally, individually, not your mother, not your grandmother, not your spouse, not your best friend. Each of you individually personally surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You could say that that surrender is like dying to yourself. I no longer am going to run my life. I am going to surrender my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a spiritual act that you make willingly by exercising your faith. And when you do that, that would be what I am referring to as prearrange your spiritual death. You get the spiritual death part out of the way now by completely dying to yourself, surrendering your right to run your own life. Because by the way, you're running it in the wrong direction. We all were. And you ask him humbly to give you that gift that he's extending to you today. You ask him for forgiveness of your sins personally. You ask him to be your Lord, boss, master in your life individually. Romans 10 says it this way in verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's a promise. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. It goes down in verse 13 and it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever, you could write your name in there. It was about 33 years ago when I came to understand this for the first time in my life. And I wrote my name in there. If Jeff Bartell will call upon the name of the Lord, he'll be saved. 
I believed what the Bible said about me. I believed what the Bible said about Jesus, and I understood that the offer was made to me freely. And the gentleman that was explaining these things to me asked me a simple question. He said, Jeff, let me ask you this. If Jesus Christ is willing to receive you just as you are today, would you be willing to receive him as your Lord and Savior? I was a college student back then. But I still had enough clarity of mind to think, yeah, I, of course I want that. Who, who would be so bold as to say no to that? It's the greatest offer. Listen, there's an absolute 100% money-back guarantee. You all will be resurrected somewhere eventually, either with God in heaven or separated from God in hell. Because hell is the second death for everybody who doesn't personally receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Why does the resurrection matter to me personally? Because if I'm willing to die to myself, I'll be saved. Saved from the second death. Saved from having to go through that. Listen, friends, I'm here to help you. Your good works won't keep you out of hell. Neither will your church membership. You need a personal relationship with a risen Lord of the universe. Do you have that? Nobody in this church is going to bother you and come to you and harass you. I promise you that. But we do care enough about you to offer you that invitation and to give you the opportunity to receive it right now. So if you would just bow your heads with me and close your eyes, I want to lead you in a prayer. And if that's you, I would like for you to pray with me. I'm going to lead you in kind of a sample prayer, but my words aren't magic, and neither are yours, by the way. But if in the sincerity of your heart you want to respond to God, then he'll respond to you. So my question is this, with nobody looking around, please. If you sincerely and truly would say, man, I understand it. And today, I want to surrender the control of my life to Jesus Christ. I need him to forgive me of my sins. I believe what he says about me. I believe what the Bible says about him. I'm not sure if I died today, I'd have eternal life. But boy, I want it. I don't want to go to hell. If that's you and you would say, Jeff, pray for me because I want to receive the Lord as my Savior today. Nobody's going to come to you, I promise. I just want to know if there's people like that. Would you just raise your hand where you're at? Just raise it up and put it back down. I've got hands all over the main floor, a few people up in the balcony. Nobody's going to bother you, I promise. Just raise it up and put it down. I, the Lord spoke to me. I want this thing. I'm going to lead you in a little prayer. And you can kind of in your heart just say this to the Lord. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for loving us so much that while we were yet sinners, you gave your life. You died the death that we should have died. And you offer us the free gift of eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. There's no doubt in my mind. I'm a sinner. I've blown it. I get it. I understand that I'm going the wrong way. And Lord Jesus, I pray you'd forgive me. I want to live with you. I want the free gift of eternal life. Please give that to me. Please, Lord, come into my heart and into my life and give me eternal life. Lord, I commit to follow you all the days of my life from today moving forward. Lord, I, I want to follow you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for offering to me this free gift. And you said whosoever will call, and Lord, I'm calling. And I believe what you said. So thank you for the free gift of eternal life, and thank you for loving me enough to do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at me, 